Welcome everybody to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker back with you for another interactive class. I know that this month has been uh, really kind of an every other week thing. Do apologize for that. Been on the road a lot. Uh, but those will be special treats down the road. Uh, you guys did, at least Connecting the Universe uh, portal members, got a taste of the Hotel Boulderado with one of our uh, morning mug videos. So for those that are not yet members of the Connected Universe portal that will be listening to the audio podcast of this later, please join us out here every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m., connecteduniverseportal.com for our weekly classes, which you get the full presentation, the slideshows, the videos. We are getting some videos tonight, uh, quite a few actually. And of course, we have a lot of other material on the backside, monthly Q&A videos. You get the full travel blogs for Egypt, Ireland, the American Southwest, plus more that will be coming on, uh, coming out down the road. You get the morning mug videos I was just talking about, sneak peeks and behind the scenes of a lot of different projects going on. And of course, a plethora of articles. That's connecteduniverseportal.com. Please join us. Now, for those that are actually watching live, Let's go ahead and get into tonight's subject, which is an interesting one. I kind of cheated with this episode. What I mean by that is uh, I'm going to be showing some uh, some more lengthy videos. Of course, I've been running around the country uh, like crazy here this month. So to get class material together for tonight, it's been a little crazy, especially since I'm hitting the road again, or I should say the air again tomorrow night. Uh, so I kind of cheated a little bit with the videos, but... Um, but it's all, it's all good because it's all great information. So when we're talking like weather and the supernatural, we're talking about uh, how we, in many cases, see supernatural activity play out as an effect of the weather. Usually something to do with the energy, whether that's electromagnetism or otherwise, creating some sort of field within the area for this activity to draw upon and manifest. We're going to be getting into uh, several different examples of that this evening. So I do want to throw out there, because this is in part inspired by Hurricane Ian, uh, kind of gave me the idea, well, this is a you know hot topic right now that everybody's concerned about, and I do want to throw that out there, that uh, you know while, while we are discussing these different weather topics this evening, uh, those people that are down there in Florida and you know, the American Southeast that will be affected by this, uh, they are in our thoughts and prayers uh, throughout these uh, probably next couple of weeks. I think uh, it's, with some of the damage that's going to be done, it's going to take uh, a while to recover for some people. I do have several friends down in that area. So you're on our thoughts. So speaking of hurricanes, let's kind of start with that first. Uh, so... Actually, before we, we get into have a whole hurricane segment here, uh, before we get into that, I almost forgot. Uh, and for those that have seen my shadow person presentation at events, uh, you'll recognize this slide. And that is the quote from Dr. Hans Holzer. There is no supernatural world. Everything that exists is natural. And I also use this in the Shadow Dimension docu-series. And, you know, I mean, of course, when we were talking about weather phenomena, we were talking about something that is quite natural. But the kind of quote-unquote supernatural phenomena that is around us is also quite natural. He actually did not like the term supernatural. There are a couple of words that he wished were eliminated from the English language. And that was one of them. Uh, because of the fact that these things that, happen, that occur, while they are more rare, they're quite natural uh, within our world to, and our universe, connected universe, to actually happen. We just don't see them as often. And there are some special circumstances in which we do actually get to see them. And so, and we're going to see here in a couple of instances when we get into some of this different phenomena tonight that, you know, at, at certain points, we may not actually be talking about a ghost or an apparition or spirit or something like that, uh, but it is still very, very rare phenomena that does happen. So, okay, let's go ahead and get into the uh, you know, 
the hurricanes. There are several different uh, hurricanes uh, stories that are associated. Since we're getting into, you know, we're on the brink of the Halloween season, and many people believe that Halloween season started at the uh, beginning of September. Uh, we are going to get into some different hauntings here to start off the night. Uh, primarily the gray man, uh, who you'll see here. I'm going to crank up the video here so that we can get into this. And I'm going to let myself tell these stories. This is, this is a longer clip. So um, kick back, drink a little coffee. This is actually a very long excerpt from a uh, YouTube video I'd put out there on the Hunter Road Media Channel. Have, have a watch. Just south of Myrtle Beach originates the chilling tale of the Gray Man, which dates back to 1822, when a young man traveling north from Charleston to see his fiancée perished in quicksand-like mud in the marshes. Upon hearing the news, the fiancée wandered the shore for hours until she spotted a shadowy figure that she recognized as her love. He soon vanished into thin air. That night, she saw him in her dreams and was so overcome with grief that her father brought her and the whole family inland to see about a doctor. The next day, a hurricane destroyed the area, leaving many of their neighbors dead. However, the fiancé's family home was unscathed. The spirit of the man who perished in the swamp has haunted those shores ever since, looking for the girl he loved and has become known as the Gray Man due to his gray clothing and long gray coat. He is not to be feared, however. The Gray Man is a helpful spirit who's known to warn local residents of incoming storms and hurricanes. The Gray Man hit the national spotlight just after Hurricane Hugo in 1989 when local residents Jim and Clara Moore were interviewed on Unsolved Mysteries. They claimed they saw the Gray Man on the beach, who disappeared when they waved at him, but their house was spared from the hurricane when other nearby homes were severely damaged. Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans and the surrounding area in 2005, killing over 1,200 people, mostly due to the 50 breaches of levees around the city and costing hundreds of millions of dollars. Such destruction and loss of life is bound to create a ghost story or two, including a restaurant that's been haunted by the ghost of a woman who died the day after Hurricane Katrina made landfall. Before the restaurant on the corner of Magazine and Jackson was built, it was the burial site for Vera Smith. Smith was 65 years old at the time of her death, hit by a drunk driver during the Katrina mayhem and left for dead in the street. Sadly, she bled out, and with the city in a state of emergency, Vera Smith's body remained on the sidewalk near the street for five days. Finally, neighbors decided to create a makeshift grave memorial for her, covering her body in dirt in a plastic shroud and surrounded it in bricks, which remained on the property until the restaurant was built in 2012. Smith's body was later cremated and her ashes spread on her parents' gravesite in Texas. Business at the restaurant had been slow with numerous mishaps, including the brand new meat grinder going out the week they opened, broken water lines, vandalism, and fighting with the city. They eventually hired a local artist to fashion a new memorial at the site to help the woman's spirit rest in peace. Eventually they closed and a new restaurant occupies its spot. The Great Galveston Hurricane, also known as the Great Storm of 1900, was the deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history and was also one of the deadliest hurricanes to affect Canada. It left between 6,000 and 12,000 people dead in the U.S., with most citations claiming 8,000, most of which occurred in and around Galveston, where more than 3,600 homes were destroyed. Every building was damaged, and of the 38,000 that lived, there were 30,000 left homeless. Of the buildings in Galveston that were obliterated, one was the St. Mary's Orphan Asylum, which housed 90 children and 10 nuns on staff. The winds of the hurricane started ripping into the island on the morning of September 8th, and by the afternoon, according to one of the surviving boys of the orphanage, the rising tides began eroding the sand dunes as though they were made of flour. When the water of the gulf reached the dormitories, the sisters brought all of the children into the girls' dorm, since it was newer and stronger but it was only a temporary reprieve. By 6 p.m., the winds were gusting at 100 miles per hour, and the entire town became flooded when the Gulf water met the bay water. An hour and a half later, the main tidal surge struck the south shore, and houses were ripped off their foundations and used as battering rams against the other houses. The collapse of the boys' dormitory resounded loudly as it was ripped apart and carried away by floodwaters. The sisters used clothesline ropes to tie the children to them, each nun taking on six to eight children. 
Some of the older children climbed out onto the roof. The girl's dormitory was suddenly lifted from its foundation. The bottom fell out and the roof came crashing down on those inside. Only three boys survived. One of the boys remembered a sister tightly holding two small children in her arms, promising not to let go. Two of the sisters were found together across the bay on the mainland. One of them was tightly holding two small children in her arms. Even in death, she had kept her promise not to let go. The site of the St. Mary's Orphan Asylum is now the Seawall Walmart, perhaps not the most ideal replacement for the historic institution, but it's a very haunted store. Employees have reported misplaced toys, missing pallets of toy inventory, disembodied laughter of children, as well as cries for parents. One particular employee went so far as to seek out a lost child after hearing one of the cries and enlisted the help of others when the child couldn't be found. The store employees narrowed the cries down to a couple of aisles, even going so far as to argue with each other, she's on your side, no, she's on your side. But no child was ever to be found. All right, that was from four years ago, and you can watch the entire video out on the Haunted Road Media YouTube channel, although that's really the bulk of it, so you really got most of it and don't have to do that. Uh, checking in a few comments down here in the chat while that was running, uh, so Jen is letting us know. Maeve is here too, so hello, Maeve. Good to see you. And uh, Sarah Yusuf is saying, Halloween is paranormal Christmas. Yeah, so when we do the whole uh, September because some people say it's September 1st, beginning of Halloween season. When November 1st hits, then we kind of can't complain that people start celebrating Christmas at that time. I know it's, and to me, the Christmas season starts uh, at Thanksgiving, but that's, it's different for everybody, I guess. Uh, Tom is saying that uh, he was in Florida during Hugo. Uh, and that was a big one too, because I have an uncle who lives in uh, St. Thomas, and uh, my, my dad ended up having to go down and uh, help him, brought a generator down and all that stuff uh, because of the severe damage that, that they experienced there in St. Thomas during Hugo. Um, I was actually in Biloxi, Mississippi for tech school uh, during my Air Force training for uh, Hurricane Andrew back in 1992. Uh, I, uh, I, I filled a lot of sandbags. <laughs> we, we ended up just fine. Uh, and then back when Mike had bad posture, I've, I've never really had good posture. My shoulders have kind of a natural hunch to them. What was bad about that was the camera angle. It was, that was, that was really bad camera angle. Come on, come a long way since then. There are watching that video. I'm like, you know, there are a lot of things I wish I could clean up about that. Uh, we're going to get into some older video actually here in just a little bit. So, um, so it's uh, fascinating about those stories. You, know, you have, okay, the gray man who is seen in many cases before the hurricane actually hits. So he's a harbinger of sorts, uh, not necessarily of death. You know, he's, he's not like that in the sense that, you know, he, he comes around and kind of warns people. And it seems like those who actually experience the the gray man are spared while others around may or may not, um, you know, have some sort of folly upon them. Like uh, the one example there where their house was spared and the ones around them, you know, were obliterated, you know, that sort of thing. And, and not necessarily that people are dying, but you know, they lost their house, which is, uh, uh, you know, of course, a, another bad thing to happen. Um, before I started drinking so much coffee. Now, actually, I think I was drinking more coffee back then. <laughs> that might have been that might have been the issue. Of course, I am drinking coffee right now too. Uh, so, and yes, uh, Sarah, often you hear scary stories about dark and stormy nights. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that kind of like sets the mood, kind of sets the tone. And when I was really little, and this is probably one of the things that helped me, uh, you know, get into you know, this sort of a field is um, my mom, when I was very little before, you know, before we were going to school, um, she would kind of watch and babysit the neighborhood kids. They would come over to our house and, 
you know, we do a kind of an arts and crafts and, you know, my mom would do like a little story time or whatever. It was like preschool at my house sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, on occasion, the storm would come through, the electricity would go out and my mom would start telling spooky stories. And so um, I always, I always really enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun. All right. So let's kind of move on from that a little bit. Uh, the Katrina thing, of course, was just terrible how her body was left in the street there. And, and that memorial is still there for her, which is which that's a good thing. And the Galveston, um, I don't think Victoria Monday is uh, with us down here today. My co-host from Edge of the Rabbit Hole. Um, she'll probably watch the replay. I know she does when she's not here. But uh, that's that's a um, we've mentioned uh, the hur hurricanes before she's brought up Galveston. So I know she's quite familiar with that and has gone to uh, those locations down there. And the, the story with the nuns and the children is just, um, you know, the, the fact that so many people perished and, you know, that the nuns to their very last breath were trying to save those children. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a terrible tale and just, they ended up putting a Walmart on top of the site, which is really guys. Okay. Um, and now the Walmart's haunted. So go figure that. So the idea here is that a couple different types of energy that you're dealing with. One, um, you know, you have the energy of the spirit, people who, uh, possibly, don't know that they've perished. You know, a hurricane is, you know, a very traumatic event, even if you live through it. Uh, but if you are basically running or swimming for your life or something like that, you may possibly still, you know, in that afterlife, thinking you're still running from the hurricane or trying to swim for your life or something like that. Uh, so there are those sorts of things that uh, people will experience. Or, you know, it looks like, uh, they're at the Walmart. They might have children playing in, in the aisle. So they might be playing around in the afterlife and trying to play with toys. Uh, again, sad that they haven't been able to move on. So you have that type of spirit energy that's still lingering there. But, um, you know, some massive storms like that, when they do damage, they leave their mark. And there is a uh, an energy that, of course, becomes trapped within the site as well that could help to spawn some of this activity or help for those spirits that are still lingering there to be able to manifest because the energy is still there as well. What's this? Tom says, I'm thinking my Walmart is haunted. Maybe the best low cost investigations. There you go. Just walk around on your shift. <laughs> All right. So, and, uh, and Sarah, we're actually about to get to this here in just a moment. Do you think the ionization of water in the air is conductive to paranormal activity? Um, basically the ionization of the air from the discharge of the electricity during storms, uh, aids with that. So we're going to see that here with the 101 ranch, which is out in Ponca city, um, which is out in Ponca city, Oklahoma, I almost said Illinois. I've been, I've, I've lived in far too many States. I'm starting to get the names of the States mixed up. Um, this is a, it's a fascinating historic location, and I'm going to let Mike, myself, uh, give you a little bit of history on the location, and then there's a moment there where we're hearing different things and seeing different things in the distance. Essentially, what, is, what has happened on, on this particular investigation, it was myself and a, and a guy named Ken. Uh, it was just two of us from our group at that time went up there to film a episode of Ghost and Legends of Oklahoma. Back then, I ended up renaming it to just Ghost and Legends, one of my oldest videos out there on the Hunter Road Media YouTube channel. This thing is like 11 years old. And what happened is you know, we're doing some basic filming. You know, we're doing, okay, here's the history of the location. Here's this, there's this part, here's this part, here's this part. And... We did a little tour, really. Uh, I want to thank the 101 Old Timers Association for that, uh, specifically Bill Balser, who you know, passed away a few years back. But uh, they're very, very kind with, with so many things that we did out there between just letting us investigate out there whenever we want and also when we did the recreations for uh, 
for my ghost story, which was not about that site, uh, which was about a different location that wouldn't let us film on site there. So uh, the 101 Old Timer Association uh, let us use their property for that. But in any case, uh, so we'd done all that initial filming, decided that we were going to go and grab some snacks, quick bite to eat, that sort of thing. While we were off the property, a massive storm just blew through. Thunder, lightning, this, you know, pouring rain, going crazy. Uh, you'll see how disheveled that I look toward the end of this. It is because of that rain. And during our initial investigations there, before we went out to get a, a bite, there was like nothing going on. It was just dead, 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 dead. I mean, we did the tour, sure. We did a little investigating, nothing going on. Went out to get a bite to eat. Massive storm rolls through. And then all of a sudden, we're getting all kinds of stuff happening. So, Sarah, that adheres to your question. Uh, and so I'll go ahead and uh, let myself tell the story. This is the 101 Ranch up by Ponca City, which was owned by the Miller Brothers during the 1900s. Uh, they were famous for their Wild West shows. You had a lot of personalities here like Bill Pickett, Lucille Mohall, Will Rogers stopped in from time to time. Uh, Tom Mix worked here, who also uh, you know, was a bartender for a while down at the haunted uh, Blue Bell Saloon. And uh, this was a 110,000 acre ranch. Now it's been reduced to a park, a couple of uh, remnants of buildings. But uh, at one point up until the depression, this was uh, the biggest ranch in the area, one of the most popular. They had worldwide Wild West shows. I'm standing on the first floor of the White House of the 101 Ranch. This used to be an 8,000 square foot home. It uh, was torn down during the 1940s by the government. They say for safety reasons, it did have an asbestos roof. Um, a lot of kids would get in here and vandalize, so they just tore it down, except for the foundation that's still here. The energy, as I was holding the, uh, I'm getting dripped on here. Um, as I was holding out the K2 and I was getting the hits, there was a uh, an energy going on my arm. And I'll kind of get that from time to time when something's nearby. I'll start to feel uh, like a static electricity um, wherever that energy may be in this particular time. It was um, up my arm. Okay, well, we're out at the uh, the exterior of the White House right now, and I don't know if you can hear it on there, but across the tree line down by the river, we're hearing the beating of drums. We're thinking maybe the uh, lightning storm tonight has really charged things, but we're hearing like do 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 do. Can you hear it? Do 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 do. There it goes again. In any case, we've seen a lot of things going on. Here we've got the drums. Um, we've seen, you know, large balls of light come from behind the trees. Um, one that was up in the top of the trees, and then we had like four at one time, just boom, all in one shot, um, and just like you know, glowing orbs of light within the trees. Um, and then there was a moment where we had coyotes calling out. Um, Ken heard a doe. We've got an owl screeching. There's all kinds of different things going on here tonight. I was a, a, a really disheveled in that one. <laughs> so I did see some questions in there about um, yeah, Sarah said that she thought she uh, heard Tom McNicholas. Tom thought it was Tom Nix. Tom Mix, M-I-X, who was actually an actor like almost 100 years ago now. Uh, he, he was a bartender at the Bluebell Saloon in Guthrie, Oklahoma. Uh, I, I covered him a little bit in my, uh, what, what did I call it? The Ghost of Guthrie or something like that. Uh, again, another town there in Oklahoma, but it's really, really a very haunted town. That whole historic section is so much going on. So Tom worked as a bartender at that saloon, and then he eventually went on to, uh, to work in the 101 Ranch and then got uh, into the film business, like along with Will Rogers, you know, back in that sort of Western heyday of the uh, real old school cinema. So it's a uh, while back. <laughs> uh, and I've seen uh, such such a baby face. I don't know. It was, it's uh, 10 years ago. So more than that. Uh, so I don't know about baby face. So still 
still uh, late 30s. So. In any case, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting night there because once we got back and you can't really see anything in that footage because it's just so dark out. And, you know, we didn't have an IR camera then. The camera that I was using was basically, um, you know, a little handheld uh, digital camera. It was primarily for taking photos. It was a, a Panasonic Lumix camera, but it did have a video feature on there. So that's what that video is from. So it was not very good quality. Uh, if you turn it up really loud, you can kind of hear the drums in the background. Of course, we couldn't get the uh, the balls of light on camera. So it's it ends up be becoming more of an anecdotal story just because it was so hard to get the footage. Now, the uh, the hits that we were getting on like the, the different meters and everything, you know, we're able to record those because those lights are, are showing up fine. And, you know, like I said, before we went out to get a bite to eat, nothing, nothing, nothing came back and everything's lighting up all over the place. So what was interesting was we were in the basement there of the uh, the great white house and we're basically following the uh, the lights on the on the meters from one of the rooms in the basement up the stairs and it went into this basically like this old freezer that was up there, which is made out of the, the stone. Uh, and that's like the only structure that's still there on, on top of the foundation because it was kind of like built right into the foundation. And once we got up there, that's when we started hearing the drums from uh, from the tree line, started seeing the balls of light and things like that. So it was almost kind of like either it was running from us or it was leading us up there, one of the two. Uh, but very, very interesting that you know, after the storm, after the storm hit, after, you know, all of that lightning, it basically charged the location. Like that, call it the ionization of the air, the, um, you know, the electricity that was discharged at that time, charged up the area so that we could actually see a lot of these different things happen. And so Tom, course is going to be familiar with uh with this type with this story because he was there for it and tom you know what i'm talking about we're talking about the mineral springs hotel alton illinois hunter road media paracon 2019 it was interesting about this you know we did have a, a storm that night what's interesting about this story additionally is the flooding that occurred at the time. So this is this is not a photo of that night, but it's just kind of an idea of uh, the view that we had when we were looking out from the ballroom windows of Mineral Springs across the Mississippi River. Uh, basically, the lightning would hit and the sky would go purple. This photo was actually taken uh, about a month beforehand when we were doing a some promotional work for the event. Uh, but the water was basically coming up. Um, you can see the railroad tracks there and then up to the road. Now, if it had gotten up to the road into the hotel, then there would have been like major national emergency. You know, people were concerned about coming out to that event because of the flooding. And, you know, I understood that concern, but it was really, when you talk about Alton specifically, it was really around the mill and the casino was underwater. Well, we weren't going to the casino. Most of the flooding was actually on the other side of the river. So uh, you can see Alton Mineral Springs is right on the very uh, left, kind of in the middle there on that photo. You can see the yellow, the yellowish building that's there. So that's the uh, the amphitheater that's there along the, the river. That's the Mississippi River, by the way. That's the Clark Bridge. And way in the distance, you can see the dam that's down there and how the water's just going around the dam. Uh, but it was never coming up to Mineral Springs. But, but people, of course, did not want to take that chance. It was worse on the other side of the river in the western half. And yes, that's a bird in the air. This is my drone. Uh, in the middle of that photo, you can kind of see a little structure there. That's actually the old dam, uh, which in Shadow Dimension Season 1, Episode 
five, I'm actually standing right at. Uh, there's actually a park that's right there. All of that is completely underwater. And it keeps, I mean, you look at all that, that's insane. So that was essentially the backdrop for this event. Massive flooding that's occurring. There's a storm that comes in. We've already had the event. Uh, we're about to start the paranormal investigation part of it. And many of us are finding ourselves outside or looking through the large windows of the ballroom to watch the lightning storm that's going on. And uh, yeah, Tom there saying uh, it was nasty. It was. Alina, floods are terrifying. Absolutely. Uh, and Sarah's asking, wasn't there a guy on Hunter Road Media video doing some water experiments in the Mineral Springs video? Uh, one of them, one of our uh, first Mineral Springs videos, he was doing a water experiment with the fountain. Uh, that was Lee Ehrlich, who's actually down there. He's, he lives in Cape Coral, Florida. He's about to get hammered uh, with this hurricane that's down there. So, you know, Lee is one of those that, you know, we wish well during all of this. Um, but that wasn't weather related. That was, we were using the fountain for doing water-based EVPs, which was interesting. So yes, that's, that's the backdrop for, uh, for what happened here. And I've told the story many times here, uh, within the class, Tom's familiar with the story because he was a part of it. Um, I've also had him and, uh, and Nick Moulet as part of the shadow dimension, uh, docu-series telling the story, which is basically, this is the one in which you know, we're, we are in uh, Pearl's room, which is on the uh, top floor of the abandoned part of the hotel. Start hearing some noises coming from down the hall, go out to the hallway. And that's the rolling black smoke coming from down the hall. I'm going to let myself tell the story, but uh, basically what we ended up seeing was this little girl. And I don't think we would have seen her had it not been for that storm. And Thomas had to remind me over and over again, hey, there was that storm that night. There was that storm that night. The Thomas finally clicked that, yes, there was that storm that night, which charged it up because we had never seen her beforehand. Others in the past had seen her, but I'd investigated in that room many, many times. Nothing, nothing, nothing. It was other locations within the building that had gotten a lot. In any case, uh, this is what I'm going to let my tell my... <laughs> I tell myself, go ahead and tell the story. Uh, some of you may recognize a lot of this from uh, Shadow Dimension Season 1, Episode 6. We were up here doing a paranormal investigation. Really toward the end of the night, kind of winding down, was just a handful of us left. And we were up here in Pearl's room. Doing an EVP session, see if we could contact her, reach out, that sort of thing. Down there, maybe a little bit hard to see from hall here, there's a hallway. You're hearing some noises come from down there. So I get up, I go walking through this doorway. It's really kind of like a suite here, I guess, is what it is. And I set myself up here. It's kind of like the L. You get the one hall there, the other hall back here. But it was from down this hallway that I saw smoke start to form up at the end of the hall. I'm actually hearing some stuff down there right now. And it was building up, building up, coming closer. It started doing this thing where it was like riding up the wall and then coming back down and then riding up the wall and coming back down. And as it got closer and closer, it started to form up into something else along that right-hand side of the wall and it became the apparition of the little girl. And we were trying to coax her closer and coax her closer. By then, the others had joined me, Shauna, Tom, uh, Nick, and Dustin. And we're all watching the little girl. And we're saying, hey, come closer, come closer, come closer. She got as far as the one doorway over here. We'll go over there. And that's the room where people say that they actually see her. And we had never experienced her before, like, ever. We've investigated in that room before. We'll go down there. Uh, we've investigated in this room before, never really got anything, may have gotten an EVP or two, really hard to tell, but nothing to ever confirm that um, there's a little girl in here. Rob Guttrow, our good friend, psychic medium, had said that she felt her 
he said that he had felt her presence in here before. And so he wrote about her a little bit in our Encounters with the Paranormal Volume 4 book. No, Volume 3 book. Or <laughs> um, was it for? <clears throat> he had written about her in one of our Encounters with the Paranormal books. And Adam Tillery did a fantastic illustration of her that was included in there, of her over by one of these windows. And really, that illustration was dead on for the little girl that we saw come from down the hall and she basically stopped like right here like right there by the doorway just hanging out right here and so um yeah that's really the story of the little girl here at mineral springs there's a lot of other things that we've experienced up here of course pearl and then down the hall is is molly's room but as far as this is the thing that really confirmed for me that some shadow people are human spirits yeah, that's kind of interesting how I changed my tune on that. And I had been for, for several years because, you know, I was out there giving presentations. Of course, you know, I'm at different con conferences talking to a lot of people. And so over time, you know, I I came to realize, okay, some of these shadows are actually human spirits. Because I, I was of the thought, shadow people are shadow people. Human spirits are human spirits are different things. Extraterrestrials are extraterrestrials. But you know, I kept getting these stories, getting these stories, getting these stories. And so finally I conceded. And it, it took Rob, who I mentioned there, uh, with his stories about his aunt. That's when it really started to click some years back. And it's like, okay, fine. Some of these are actually human spirits. And some of the stories I was getting were, was that, were absolutely fascinating. And so, you know, those are in my book, A Walk in the Shadows. But it was this, this little girl sealed that deal. Um, you know, seeing her basically morph out of rolling black smoke. And we all saw her a little bit differently. And I've, I've talked about that on different occasions as to why that is. Uh, but it was an absolutely fascinating moment. And uh, and yeah, Dustin. Tom says, poor Dustin. Chose pancakes over friends. Yeah, he kind of did. <laughs> uh, good old Dustin. All right. So that's paranormal activity that is has become enhanced from the energy of the area at the time you know you have all the energy already there at surface level because of the flooding that's going on and of course water does have an energy too especially running water that's coming down river you know, the limestone bluffs that are right there and then you had the lightning storm uh that evening so there's a lot that was going on that night. Do want to move on, though, because uh, we only have a little bit of time left. I, I will let us go like maybe five minutes over because of the whole reset and everything that happened. You notice that's been happening a little bit more lately, weird stuff like that. Uh, but we're going to kick over to the Bermuda Triangle, actually an area that uh, is not too far from this hurricane right now. Uh, the hurricane is more toward the, the western part of the state is going to uh, kick up right through the middle where the Bermuda Triangle triangles off to the east. So we're talking Bermuda to Miami uh, to, to Puerto Rico. And so that area in there, uh, a lot of, lot of crazy activity happens within, which we're not going to get into all of that tonight. Uh, we, we've done that in other classes. We've got videos out there on it. We're going to be talking about tonight uh, we're going to start with Flight 19. Now, this is the famous flight that went missing within the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, you know, all the airplanes gone. Nobody knows what happened to them. Even the search and rescue plane, one of the search and rescue planes that went out looking for this thing, ended up disappearing. But what's fascinating about this story is uh, they'd completed the first leg of their flight, which was basically due east out into the triangle. Of course, they were not calling it the Bermuda Triangle at that point. It was just, you know, the Atlantic Ocean. So they're flying out there, completed the first leg east, turned to the north. And it was that moment when things started to go awry. They started reporting all kinds of equipment malfunctions, primarily their compasses. Navigational equipment was going berserk. So, you know, without... Your compass without your navigational equipment on an airplane becomes very, very difficult 
to fly. Most guys these days fly, you know, by instrument, but you still have windows. And the guys back then still, you know, were trying to fly, uh, you know, by, of course, looking out their windows. They, they still knew how to do that. But it became difficult because all you see below you is ocean. You know, so the, the only constant you have at that point in the sky would be the sun. However, a storm kicked up out of nowhere, it was not in the forecast. Um, you know, they had scheduled their training run that day because forecast was good. Now, this is flight 19. So this was the 19th uh, run of this training mission they'd done that day. Not this crew, but um, you were the 19th crew to go out there and run the training mission. All the other ones before that, perfectly fine. This one, all of a sudden, navigational equipment's going crazy and a storm kicks up out of nowhere. Not long after that, they were completely lost. The uh, last time anybody heard from them, uh, they were trying to keep under the storm and uh, they were running out of fuel. At one point, somebody thought that they had seen the Florida Keys below them, which would have, they would have been way off course if they were over the Keys. That made no sense but they were gonna try a water landing if all else failed. We don't know if they ever attempted the water landing because we did not hear from them again. No wreckage was ever found, nothing ever washed up on shore. Gone, completely gone. And like I said, the um, one of the search and rescue planes also went missing. So storm kicking up out of nowhere, we believe because of the uh, because of the triangle, something was going on within the triangle at that time. And you had the equipment malfunctions, storm, other things going on. Did they, and some people may roll their eyes, did they teleport? Because you do have that report of, hey, I think the Florida Keys is below us. Now, when they turned north, there wasn't supposed to be any land under them for a long, long time. Um, not until they you know, turned back. So what in the world was below them? How did they get so off course like that? Uh, it's, it's, it's bizarre. And I mentioned the teleportation thing because of what happened with Bruce Gernon. And Bruce Gernon, we've talked about uh, before, he was the one that experienced the electronic fog and basically, um, you know, I don't know if I don't know if teleport's the right word, but it almost seems like it. He had some sort of time travel experience where all of a sudden he traveled like a hundred miles or something like that in a couple of minutes. I'm gonna let myself again tell the story. This is from our uh, our triangles video. And we'll get get you some of the details here. In 1970, pilot Bruce Gernon flew into what he ended up calling an electronic fog in the Bermuda Triangle and traveled forward 30 minutes in time. Flying from Andros Island to Fort Lauderdale, a flight Gernon routinely made, massive dark clouds that formed up ahead of Gernon's plane morphed into a spiral and swallowed the craft into the vortex. The plane's instruments began malfunctioning as bright white light emanated in the sky. When Gernon came out on the other side unscathed, the city of Miami was below him, having traveled a hundred miles in three minutes. Okay, so that's some of the details for you, but I see down there in the chat, I'll go ahead and answer some questions here for you guys. Um, this is back to the Mineral Springs story. Did you guys find out who the girl is and why she's there? So there had been stories about this little girl there for a long, long time. Um, yeah, and we had investigated in that room several times before that. Uh, I, I was there uh, investigating quite often for you know, a couple of years. And people have been, like I said, reporting her for a long, long time being in that room. So they had different things in that room, like teddy bears and pillows and, um, you know, letters that she could make words out of. And it's just all different kinds of things like that um, you know, because of the, the stories of her. In work that other people have done, like in, go back to it again, the Shadow Dimension series, our good friend who passed last year, Kyrie Chris Sutton, uh, you know, tells us about how uh, many people believe that she's there waiting for somebody because when she's seen, many times she's seen over by the window looking out below. 
And the way uh, Chris had put it was, it seems like maybe she's waiting for a parent, like her father or her mother, uh, to come pick her up. And she is just still there waiting uh, to be picked up and to go home. So we don't, I know that some people have, have put a name to her before, uh, but it seems like those names vary from person to person. You know, and we're talking like, you know, psychic mediums pit, picking up a different name. So not really sure what her name uh, is for sure. But, um, but yeah, you know, just a, a sad little girl. Uh, Sarah, did they have radar back then? Yes, they had radar back then. Uh, this is about flight 19, the rescue plane experience, or did the rescue plane experience the storm as well? No, actually, um, the, the rescue plane did not experience the storm. And there are some reports um, when the rescue plane went down, uh, there was a boat in the area, they believe it may have been the rescue plane, not for, for certain. Um, all of a sudden there was a ball of fire in the sky and the, the boat was kind of going in the other direction. They, they radioed it in and say, hey, we saw this in the sky. They continued to go on and do their thing. So figure that, I don't know why they didn't turn around and go check out the area. So other planes went into the area looking around, looking around, and they never saw hide nor hair of this particular rescue plane. So other rescue planes were fine, but there was one particular rescue plane that disappeared. It may have been this ball of fire in the sky, you know, sure, there could have been a malfunction, something happened on the plane, it exploded, it went down. But another one, and this was closer to land, no wreckage was ever found. Nothing ever washed up on shore, nothing, just completely gone. What happened to it? So, so we don't know for sure that it was whatever the ball of fire was in the sky. And I say that because, you know, you could, easily say, oh, well, you know, that, that would be it. Could have been a meteor. And I'd say that because one of the very first reports of any activity at all ever out of the Bermuda Triangle was back in 1492, Christopher Columbus. One of the things that he experienced along with, lo and behold, compass malfunctioning. Uh, one of the things that he experienced was a ball of fire crashing into the ocean, probably a meteor. But he did witness that. He also witnessed uh, little lights dancing across the ocean. And then he described it as like a candle uh, that would raise and into the sky and then lower back down. Crazy stuff happening at, out there. So, all right. Let's kind of move on a little bit. Uh, we don't have a lot of time left. Um, I did want to mention, uh, you know, others that experienced kind of similar things. Uh, with weather and then strange phenomena. So the Princess Sophia, we don't know for certain um, what really happened with her. This is uh, Alaska Triangle story from 1918. Uh, but, you know, it was a, a wicked storm that, uh, that kicked up. Uh, this was in October. It was a massive blizzard that lasted a couple of days. And they got hung up on the Vanderbilt Reef. Now, the captain of that leonard Locke. Uh, he was a very very experienced captain he had he had sailed this route innumerable times uh it was always up and down there uh from uh from skagway to Juneau to vancouver up and down up and down the coast he knew exactly where this was and somehow he ended up on there so the idea here, and there's there's no way to really prove it, because all they were concentrating on at the time was to get help to get the people off the ship. So nobody really ever asked, how'd you end up on the reef to begin with? That was never asked. It was, how do we get the people off of there? And so one of the ideas is that with the weather having been so bad at that time, and again, they weren't expecting a massive blizzard, let alone one that lasted several days. It's believed that one of the things that could have possibly happened was his navigational equipment to navigate the channel because they would have had to with, with not being able to see. You know, the only thing they had to rely on at that point in time was the navigational equipment. I mean, they, it was literally a whiteout. 
um, some of the boats that were trying to get up there to, you know, to launch a rescue were almost running into each other. Uh, it was just bedlam to, to try to, uh, to do this. And so having to rely on the navigational equipment, compasses, and that sort of thing, if the uh, electromagnetic activity of the triangle is affecting it at that time, then they very well could have ended up on the reef. And so you, you see this in these triangle areas where you know, storms kick up, navigational equipment goes crazy, and just, you know, there's this interesting relationship. And then, of course, you have all these other things that are seen in the area, whether it's paranormal activity, uh, you know, UFOs, all of these other things are also reported in the area. When we go back to like the missing Douglas airplane from the Alaska Triangle, on either side of that before and after it went missing, this isn't really a weather incident, but just it disappeared into nowhere. You see the UFO activity on the other side of it. Um, Dragon Triangle, Kublai Khan. So twice he tried uh, launching a invasion into Japan, both times in the Dragon Triangle. Storms kicked up and obliterated his fleet. It's one of the reasons why uh, the Dragon Triangle out there by Japan is so notorious uh, is because ships go in there and they just don't come out. And the fact that he twice, not just once, twice lost a fleet due to this is just uh, is just insane. All right, so I did want to take a few minutes here to talk about a really interesting phenomenon that um, it is, is rare but does happen and is, is associated to not necessarily weather but in earthly phenomena. And that's a phenomenon known as earthquake lights. Uh, which may sound really kind of strange. Earthquake lights, what are earthquake lights? So basically, what's going on here with these, these are mysterious lights that are seen, dance around uh, in the days or hours prior to an earthquake. So people will see strange lights in the skies or strange lights emanating on the ground and they don't know what they are. You know, they, they of course, you know, think that they're uh, supernatural phenomena, UAPs, UFOs, those sorts of things. Um, they are quite rare. It's not like it's uh, very common. And of course, you don't really know that it's about to precede an earthquake until the earthquake happens. So this particular photo here is uh, it's supposed to be one of the more well-known photos of earthquake lights. It's taken over on Mount uh, Kimio in Japan in 1968. Uh, this one here is actually uh, in Quebec, 1988. So they take a lot of different shapes, forms, and kind of see that between these two, where these ones here are kind of almost more pillar shape, where the Japan one are more like small dots in the skies. Uh, so... A little bit different each time. Uh, so it might be, uh, you know, people will think that they are, uh, you know, UFOs. It might be apparitions. Uh, you know, this is because these almost look, <laughs> right, like some sort of apparition type of thing. But it, it's this strange phenomenon. So with this particular one here, uh, I'll give you some examples. Uh, you know, people reported a uh, purple-pink globe of light along the St. Lawrence River in Quebec 11 days before a powerful earthquake. Um, that's related to these here. Uh, Pisco, Peru, uh, lights were bright flashes that lit up the sky. Uh, and that was in 2007. Security camera video uh, caught that. Uh, and in 2009, an earthquake in Italy, four-inch Flames of light, which are kind of like these, uh, were seen flickering above a stone street. So then the question becomes, you know, why do they happen? And you know, because they're so rare, it's kind of hard to uh, to really study. So here's what some of the scientists are saying. Uh, some of the different rocks in the area, of course, and we've talked about this with like quartz and other rocks, uh, you know, have various crystals, uh, or the quartz are crystals, but like basalt has crystals in it, granite has crystals in it. 
um, that of course could release electrical charges into the air if the conditions are right. And when the conditions are right is really only about 0.5% of the time, which is an estimate because, you know, it's not always seen. Sometimes they don't even really realize that they're related to uh, earthquakes. Uh, they're more commonly reported before or during quakes, not so much afterward. Uh, and basically it's, uh, you know, quartz bearing rocks, you know, producing electric fields when compressed in a specific way. I mean, basically it's the, it's, it's how we get electricity into our watches with uh, quartz crystals because it's, there's a pressure put upon the quartz. So that's kind of the idea here is that with the earthquake, there's pressure that's being pressed onto that quartz and is generating an electric field, which is interacting with different elements in the area. So what we could be seeing is an electrical discharge or some sort of plasma discharge. And this has been a increasing conversation these days with uh, the effects of, uh, of plasma. And I'm going to read a little section here. This is out of Origins of the Gods by uh, Andrew Collins and Gregory Little. It's part of Gregory Little's section. And it's uh, research done by a, um, oh, what is his name? A psycho neuro, uh, neuropsychologist Michael Persinger. And in his research, I'll just, I'll just read this real quick. Uh, one of the consistent findings from Persinger's field research was that most odd and unusual paranormal experiences in the natural world tended to take place during times of relatively unstable geomagnetic activity that was produced by building tectonic strains. So that strain that's building up as an earthquake is about to hit. The tectonic strain that is building appears to be a clue to the continual and sustained release of the energy necessary for a manifestation to occur. In short, the electromagnetic energy emerges when seismic pressure gradually builds, but the complete release of the strain leads to the energy being depleted. That is, when a large earthquake occurs, the tectonic pressure is reduced, leading to a cessation of paranormal activity. And it goes on a bit, and there's really some interesting stuff in here that talks about uh, UFO phenomena, spiritual experiences, um, angels, glowing beings, gods of the ancient cultures. Uh, we don't have time to get into it because we're kind of uh, out at this point. But, um, you know, I highly recommend uh, this book, Origins of the Gods. It has some really interesting ideas and concepts in there. But as they go in there talking about, okay, so, um, so you're having these different discharges that release uh, plasma. And there's a lot in there about plasma activity and phenomena. So are uh, these are... Uh, glowing orbs, the ones that we actually see with our eyes that are legit. Um, we're not talking dust orbs from a, a photo. Um, and if this and if is if this is that, then is there possibly an intelligence behind that uh, plasma event? And if so, um, it, it gets into the idea: are there are there plasma beings? Um, is, is this uh, you know? where does it originate from and is it coming from another dimension and what would what would an entity or a being within that actually look like so it kind of gets into when we start talking about interdimensional beings um you know who or what would they actually be and is there an intelligence behind those sorts of things so and that's in relation to earthquakes so it's really uh quite interesting when you start getting into uh things like Earthquake lights, yes, they really do exist. All right, so that is really going to uh, to wrap it up for this evening. I'm going to go ahead and skip the the bit on harp, uh, but that in itself is another fantastic wild concept where they were actually able to uh, create artificial auroras in the sky uh, with the harp technology, which of course caused people to question: Are they able to change the weather? And also, is there a mind control component to it? Because the, um, uh, the the low frequency waves that are coming down off of that, which could create different moods within human beings. Again, we don't have time to get into uh, uh, to all of that.
So, all right, everybody, I really appreciate you joining us for the Connecting the Universe class this evening. We will have one next week. So we're going off our every other uh, week schedule since I'll be uh, a little bit more consistent here now, not doing as much uh, traveling. I will still have some traveling coming up, um, but I'll be able to work in the uh, the class here for the next several weeks. Like I'm traveling again tomorrow. <laughs> um but I was able to do this today. So, all right, everybody, you have a great evening. Until next time, time really exists.